Welcome to the Educational Renaissance Podcast, where we promote a rebirth of ancient wisdom for the modern era. We seek to inspire educators by fusing the best of modern research with the insights of the great philosophers of education. Join us in the great conversation and share with a friend or colleague to keep the Renaissance spreading. Well, good morning, everyone. We're gonna go ahead and get started. My name's Jason Barney, and I'll be sharing with you today on the what and why of narration. And I'm so excited to be discussing this after Jonathan Gregg's amazing talk this morning, because one of the questions he posed for us generally was the question of pedagogy. We focused a lot, as he said, on curriculum and culture, the big picture of what we're trying to do, like the old uh, way that we are rediscovering in terms of curriculum and the various subjects, but we're really trying to zero in on how. What is the method or methods that we should use in order to embody these classical principles and how we are actually teaching students in the classroom? And I think narration is one of those ways. And so I'll be explaining more um, how I get there, the big picture of what narration is and the whys of um, how we should go about teaching these students. I, I really appreciated how Jonathan Gregg laid out this, uh, if you will, pedagogy of you know throwing down the lightning bolt at the beginning and then going through this inductive process where you lead students in a sort of Socratic fashion to discover some truth before you then work out the implications of it. I think that narration has a slightly different kind of a way of going about it that is complementary and not contradictory to that. And so we'll discover that together today and think through um, what narration is and why. And I'll, I'll give you some deeper tastes of Charlotte Mason's thought um, in particular today. And, um, and so we'll unpack that together. Feel free to Raise your hand and interact with me if you have questions along the way. Um, I'm going to ask you again to find someone near you who's going to be your partner and introduce yourself to that person today because I'm, I'm going to want you to interact with someone else and share your thoughts, what you're hearing from me, and also what, um, what uh, you can discuss together with them. So find someone near you and make them your partner. Uh, I'll give you a minute to do so here. <laughs> All right, let's go ahead and gather back. You've got your partner. Determine who's on the left and who's on the right, because I'm going to have you interact with them partway through here. Um, so first, let's dive in on what narration is. So I'm going to give you a definition, and then I'm going to unpack some various elements of narration. Narration is a long-form imitative response to rich content. So long form means that it's, it's not a summary. It's not just saying a sound bite or two, but it, uh, it's actually when a student tells back in full detail as much as they can remember of some content that you've previously exposed them to. And that long form aspect of narration is really some of where the power lies. I think what we do often very well in our schools is this sort of 
quick guided questioning approach where we sort of throw out a rapid fire question then a student can answer back. And so when we do comprehension questions where I ask you a question about a distinct fact from this history book or this literature book, a lot of our curriculum have that built in already. Right. We know how to do that. And I'm not saying that that isn't worthwhile and have its own place. But narration is something different. It's when you stop and give a student a chance to tell in full detail as much as possible. So that's the long form aspect of it. It is also an imitative response. So you've given a student something that's worth imitating in their own minds. It could be um, a story. You have a few pages out of this story. It could be a painting. It could be a um, set of descriptions about a scientific fact, some, something in the natural world that we've read out to them. But you've given them something worth imitating, and when students narrate, they are reproducing what that beautiful truth or rich content was. So it's an imitative. It's also a response to content. So you're not um, out of nowhere asking them to create something in their minds that they didn't know before. And this is maybe where it comes in and is a little bit different from what Jonathan Gregg described, where he just posed a question and was relying on the student's own knowledge and awareness of the nature of how many pets or how many num like fingers people have. There are things that students would not know unless you gave them something in full detail. For instance, a beautiful painting. I can't ask students about the painting unless I first show them the painting. So there are certain sorts of truths or things in our world that you actually have to show them a lot first. You have to give them this whole story. There's no way you're going to get to a great discussion about that story unless we first read the story and comprehend the story. And so um, that takes time. And then if you want students to respond to it, narration is a way of giving them that chance to respond in full detail. Now, I like this um, idea of narration partly because it's so simple, right? You're, you're just exposing them to content and then asking them to respond by telling or writing out as much as they could remember. There's an, an elegance to that. And I think in a way it mirrors the act of teaching itself. There are many different ways of teaching, but whenever you want to teach a student something, you have some truth that you want them to know. And they have to take that truth that you present to them and put it into their own minds, take it into their own hearts and being. And so, um, you know, one way of defining teaching that John Milton Gregory gives in his Seven Laws of Teaching is the inculcation or systematic inculcation of knowledge. And uh, it's interesting because he distinguishes between teaching on the one hand and training on the other. Teaching is this systematic inculcation of knowledge, whereas training for him is the cultivation of the powers of mind and body. So think about for a moment in your mind, when are you training students and when are you teaching them? You do both. Perhaps you do both at the same time, but in some ways you focus on one rather than the other. 
We could also um, think of teaching as the communication of knowledge. It's painting, uh, John Milton Gregory says, in another's mind, the mental picture in one's own. The shaping of a pupil's thought and understanding to the comprehension of some truth which the teacher knows and wishes to communicate. Do you think of yourself as doing that, painting in children's minds the thought that's in your own? One of the great things about narration is it relieves us of some of the burden of providing all the content or truth that we would have students know. I have a lot of things in my mind that I know, but I can't always be this amazing dispenser of knowledge for kids where I perfectly have it in here and then I paint it in their minds. Sometimes I need to just function as uh, a facilitator, right? Where I'm bringing them what Charlotte Mason would call a living book. And they all have a copy. I have a copy. And I help guide them in a mind-to-mind interaction with the author of that book. Because the, the author of that book is the genius, and I am not. But I'm still a teacher when I help them paint in their minds the beauty of that book. And you could do that same thing with the painting. I'm not a great artist. My paintings will never be on display in a museum but I can still have a method for helping a student paint in their mind that painting and interact well with it. So that's the, the two elements of narration are really this exposure of students to rich content, have them respond to it imitatively in a long format with as much detail as possible. And um, the goal here is really twofold. When we have students narrate from content, we want them to assimilate it, to sit down to a rich feast, to eat of the delights of that intricate order of the world that Augustine mentioned in his On Order. Um, There are so many different types of ordered relationships, but we want students to know things coming out of our Classes that we, we want them to actually know something. Charlotte Mason has this great quote. She said, "Whatever a child or grown-up person can tell, that we may be sure he knows, and what he cannot tell, he does not know." It's a powerful quotation, isn't it? Whatever a child or grown-up person can tell that we may be sure he knows and what he cannot tell, he does not know. We may have intimations of some things, but if we can't tell it, do we still really know it? Maybe we knew it at one point, but do we know it now? And so Charlotte Mason's challenge to us in saying, use narration as a primary tool of learning is, let's get students telling. When they tell, we know whether they know or not. And that's what kind of bleeds into this idea of assessment. She says, similarly, in her sixth volume toward a philosophy of education, we are all aware, alas, what a monstrous quantity of printed matter has gone into the dustbin of our memories (laughs) because we have failed to perform that quite natural and spontaneous act of knowing. 
as easy to a child as breathing, and if we would believe it, comparatively easy to ourselves. Charlotte Mason is saying here that in order to actually know something, you have to perform an act. You have to, in a way, deliberately capture the thing that you are perceiving and store it in your memory. And this is an easy act. Children perform it all the time. Who hasn't been surprised at the things a young child knows or remembers that you would have thought never in the world would they have known that? And then, of course, there are other times when you are surprised that they fail to take that act and do not know that thing that you thought they should. We can't perfectly, of course, control what students know or don't know, but the power of narration is in the ability to set up a, uh, a situation, a set of moral relationships, if you will, in which students more often and more regularly take that picture of with their mind to know something, to attend with full effort to that which is set in front of them, those beautiful truths, that rich story that we would have them know. Um, for Charlotte Mason, she uh, came to this uh, recognition of the power of narration as a tool of learning. Through a course of time, she started out as a teacher, actually a pupil teacher in England, got the Queen's Scholarship and um, went through the teacher training process sort of of her day before kind of going on to a career to lead and train teachers herself. And she remarks that um, she discovered this secret of attention as sort of a puzzling problem. So she says in her sixth volume, um, it's difficult to explain how I came to the solution of a puzzling problem, how to secure attention. Much observation of children, various incidents from one's general reading, the recollection of my own childhood, and the consideration of my present habits of mind brought me to the recognition of certain laws of mind. That's those ordered relationships that we were talking about this morning. How does the mind actually work? By working in accordance with which the steady attention of children of any age and any class in society, so even those born to poor mining communities who join the liberal arts, liberal education movement, is ensured week in and week out attention not affected by distracting circumstances. She's got some bold claims there, but she felt that she had discovered something really powerful that you can, through using narration regularly in a classroom, have a whole group of students with their minds securely engaged, attending, week in, week out, able to tell back three months later what they had told back three months before what they had engaged fully with. One reading was an important condition that she had for texts especially because we have this, all, this habit of mind where we all kind of will put off that act of knowing as long as possible till tomorrow if we know we can check it again. Um, in the same way, you know, you have to set up this situation where there's one reading only 
We're not going to have you study it up later, and then you must know, and you tell it back to me. And that creates this kind of moral impulse in children where they then do, in fact, know it. It's just a little bit of background on Charlotte Mason. So it's both assimilation and assessment for us when we um, ask students to tell back because we then are able to hear and judge what they uh, understood or knew. There will be times if you use narration in the classroom that a student will say, I don't know. I don't remember. What do you do when a student says, I don't know? Right? It's a hard problem um, because you don't want to publicly shame the student, but at the same time, you want to have high standards in the classroom for what students should know. So do we just find ways to work around this problem of attention? Right? We want our students to all feel the impulse to attend and be trained in this habit of attention so that they don't have to think about it. They sit down to a book, mind in. They're stuck there. And it's a a normal thing for them. That's what Charlotte Mason felt that she had hit upon. So one of the things that I would suggest if you use something like narration in the classroom is that you use cold call. You call on students regardless of whether they have their hands up. And when you have a student who draws a blank or says, I don't know, do what Doug Lamov in Teach Like a Champion calls no opt-out. Go to another student and have that person tell back who's willing, and then come back to the first student. Can you tell back what that first student said? Or say, okay, I understand you blanked on this one. Let's make sure you're attending. Next time I'm going to call on you. And you let that student know that it's coming and better, you know, 19 out of 20, I mean, maybe even more than that, that student will be able to tell next time around you have a narration. You let them know. You prepare them. And um, then you develop this habit and culture of attention through this practice of narration in your classrooms. So um, moving right along here, I want to... Can I ask a question? Yeah, go ahead. Let's... Mm-hmm. So ninth grade literature. Yeah. Um, my students at the start of the year super struggled with reading the Iliad, and some of them had come through our grade school and mm-hmm. the story. Some hadn't. They just really had a hard time. So in that kind of a situation where you think, I think this kid probably did do the reading and honestly didn't get it at all. Do you still? Do I still come back to that? I mean, just wondering, what do you do if you feel like if I'm trying to assess that they've done the reading? Um, I, I'm pretty confident this is a really good, and, they're, and they tell me, and I believe them. I really tried Mrs. Manhattan. I had no idea what it was that I read. Yeah, that's com- completely understandable. So if I just restate what you're saying, yeah. ninth grade class, got students who are assigned reading for the Iliad, go home. You believe them that they did it. They come in. They don't know. <laughs> they don't have much to account for their right. reading of the Iliad. Um, two things I would suggest at that point, with hard, challenging, great books, even in the upper school or high school sequence, I would suggest that you do more reading aloud in class than is traditionally done in most of our modern schools. So move a good portion of that reading into the classroom, read aloud there, have them 
narrate there, you can assure, like ensure a high quality reading of the text that because of the nature of their education, their habits up to this point, they're not ready to do a high comprehension reading of the Iliad at home. So that's one step, mm-hmm. and it's kind of remedial because in students who, with students who have been doing narration from younger grades on through, we send home the Iliad. They can read a, a book or two, come back in, and fill a whiteboard with, nice. you know, plot points that they remember mm-hmm. with their friends. So do a different type of narration where, like, they together are putting together. Okay, what's the plot that happened in that full? whole book. We got it all down, you know, in seven to 10 minutes. And then we can go into a big Socratic discussion around the ideas in it. So that's very possible for ninth graders to do. But even then, I would say the beauty of reading an epic aloud, let's do it together. Like if you get to, you know, read Dante's Inferno, the whole paradise, you know, um, Paradiso and all of those, right? Like the Divine Comedy. You, you should read a lot of that in class together because it's going to be so rich and uh, beautifully challenging for students, even at that level. That um, it, you know, epics were really meant to be read aloud. Mm-hmm. So I would suggest more reading in class, but then still feel free to assign reading at home. You get a student in who's that. Just work with him. You know, um, I would suggest setting up their reading at home with older students, very particularly with challenging texts where you want to go, here are some of the things you're going to encounter in what you're going to read tonight. I'm going to give you a few hooks for your mind. You're going to encounter Achilles, you know, interaction with so-and-so and so-and-so. You're going to do this because it's not like the point of an epic, for instance, that sort of story is like the suspense and you're going to be surprised by something new happening. Give them a few hooks for their mind and um, and then have them come in and repeat those hooks and then have them fill in those hooks through narrating. And that'll, I think, help the process a lot. So what you're doing there is sort of inverting part of what um, I shared yesterday, my narration trivium lesson plan and with older students you're doing the narration at home the reading at home Mm -hmm. and then and so you have to set them up before they go home Mm -hmm. in order to help them do a high quality reading so so narration um it's got these two components it's very simple uh we expose students to rich content we have them respond in a long form imitative way and through doing that we're helping their brains actually assimilate material take it into themselves into their hearts for the long term and we get to assess the extent to which they've understood something which gives us the ability to then follow up from a narration with a discussion where we're helping them understand the things they didn't understand and take them further with whatever it might be. Could be a painting. Well, let's look back at that painting by Bonnet. What do you notice about the outlines of the details? So you've seen all the lily pads and the various colors and noted them. What do you notice about the outlines? This is what's called impressionism. Like, and so let's look at another impressionist painting. So you can take things further in that way where you know, you get to um, move them beyond their current understanding. So um, I'm going to move past the history of narration and dive into 
a little bit of why narration next, but I want to pause right here um, with what we've gone through in terms of what narration is and the quotations I've shared, some of the ideas from Charlotte Mason herself. I want you to find that partner and the person that's on the left. Can you start telling Meg, what, it, what have I shared so far about what narration is? And then person on the right, go ahead and add anything that they missed that you remember. If they're wrong, just correct them, but do it kindly. Go. <laughs> Are you ready to take your classroom or school to the next level? Here at Educational Renaissance, we want to equip you with skills and practices that will help you achieve your goals as educators. Join us for our next live webinar and take a deep dive into the topics you've learned about through our blog posts, podcasts, books, and videos. Learn practical skills and get your questions answered to level up your classroom or school. Simply sign up for our next live webinar on our webinar page at educationalrenaissance.com. Learn more about upcoming webinars or find other downloadable content. If you believe teaching is a craft, then join us for our next webinar where you can be apprenticed to gain valuable skills and practices. Sign up at educationalrenaissance.com. All right, let's go ahead and come back together as a big group. In your discussions, did any questions come up? Yeah. Um, well, it's just the one that I had when we were talking earlier mm -hmm. was just um, if it's a text, no matter what the age, um, if it's a longer text, um, is it appropriate and good? It seems like, okay, let's say, even if it's a children's book, like I teach first and second, mm -hmm. um, like to take a page and or to take a paragraph, if it's a story you're reading, um, and say, then have them narrate it to you. And then at the end, you can have, okay, we, we narrated throughout this book. Now um, I'm going to call on somebody to narrate the whole thing for me. Yeah, that's a, that's a great idea. So Charlotte Mason, in her book, Home Education, lays out a basic structure of a lesson for using narration, especially with young students. She's kind of thinking in that particular volume of students up to the age of nine. And she recommends um, uh, first little talk. I'm going to go back and forth between cursive and print, a reading of an episode. So it might be a couple pages or with young students who are new to it, you might just do a paragraph or two. Um, I've done times where, say, if you're teaching a science textbook and it's pretty dense text, where you might just do a couple paragraphs or three, you know. Um, so it depends on where the student's at in their fluency with narration, the length. I would always, when you pick the length of a particular passage out where I'm going to stop and have students narrate, you want to have your students in mind and be taking them on a process of slowly increasing that, that, you know, giving them enough of kind of a, like academic challenge for where they're at, but not so much that it's going to be, that it's going to be just a leap that's too hard. That said, sometimes uh, I would say teachers who I've been familiar with who have used narration even for years will just stick with shorter passages than students really can do. So if they're not missing some things, 
then maybe you want to make it a, a little bit longer, right? Because they can't. So, um, so she recommends first step is kind of having a first little talk. Maybe it's just rehashing what happened in the story up to this point, or perhaps it's setting them up in some way that they can understand the text better when they read it. There might be vocabulary words in the text that they would not know that you can write those words on the board and just let them know ahead of time what those words mean. It might be that there's some big concept or idea that they wouldn't understand if you didn't kind of give them a prime. And so you have a first little talk. Um, and the goal here is really to create expectation in Charlotte Mason's mind. You don't want to bore them with too much teacher talk in her mind. Like they want to get to the text or the story, like the meat of the lesson is going to be in the reading. And then you'd have a narration. Um, and in this particular passage in home education, Mason recommends that you use that kind of string narration if there are several students um, there. And then you have a second little talk after that where you bring out ideas. And um, for young students up till nine, she, she said this lesson could take no more than 15, 20 minutes. So it's a, a short lesson. Now, what I've found with many teachers is helpful is when you're going longer than that for particular subjects, the reading might need to be this particular length, but your lesson's going to go twice this length. So what you might do is, what you're saying here is, we're going to do a second reading. Then there's going to be another narration. And then we're actually going to do the little talk at the end. Could you do a little talk right here? Yeah. And so this becomes kind of a flexible format where you might have multiple readings and narrations with talks in between or different setups for them. The basic kind of structure is we're going to talk a little bit that's going to set you up for reading or, or some sort of exposure. I'm going to expose you to some content. I'm going to have you narrate it. Then we can do more content, narrate, and then discuss depending on what's needed for the students at that particular, yeah. Is it appropriate to have the narration, any of the narrations be written narrations? Certainly, okay. yeah. Because I teach older, I teach older kids. So. What grade level? High school. Yeah, so um, at the high school level, you know, um, you can do, well, even starting in third grade, you can start using written narrations. So what you could do to vary it is, you know, you do some sort of setup for the nature of the lesson itself. You do a reading, uh, whether aloud or silently. She recommends either. So it just depends on what you think is going to be best for the students for this one. And then you could have them write out a paragraph narration. Um, or even at that point, some kind of partial narration or a summary. And then we could come out of it and talk and then do some more reading, and then do a partner narrate, right? And then come out of it again. And then you give a lecture, because it's like, well, you need to know this now. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to tell you the rest of this. And then, okay, um, summarize in one sentence what I just expressed. Yeah. So when they're doing the narration, are they looking back at the text at all? Or are you just asking them to do this? What is it that you're just remembering? Yeah, it's turn over the text or close yeah, your book. I just want to make sure. And so that you don't have a memory cue 
and you have to do the the hard work of pulling it out of your mind. That's what Which I, is, I just wanted to make sure. It's like, it's the, that's where the juice is. Mm-hmm. It's like, you, you got, there has to be the squeeze mm-hmm. to get the orange juice coming out. And that's the squeeze right there. Right. Is recall it from memory right now. Just told you it. It's there. And you're like, oh, um, it was, uh, there was a something about a fish. And, uh, <laughs> you know, like that's what you'll experience, especially at first. But that's. And we, we know from some modern learning science, that's where the, yes. you know, um, the, even if they don't remember it fully, but then we talk about it or they hear someone else say it, that, that part of that um, experience of trying to recall is what then, sh- oh, okay, it's going to seal it in for a longer term memory. And they'll know it tomorrow. They didn't know it in class today. They'll know it tomorrow. Because they had that experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I would argue that sometimes knowledge can be expressed in terms of what you don't know. Example with the scientific method. Mm -hmm. You're asking them questions or posing a reading that might reveal some facts, but the reflection on that will come out of what you don't know. For example, uh, let's say we're talking about Van Leeuwen books. The recognition that things are not always what you see, but what you do not see. The, the understanding of viruses yeah. and things like that. So you could have students narrate what they read, but then reflect upon that, what they don't know. What needs to be the next step? Yeah, That involves a deeper learning. And I think that's where some of the most profound understandings that we have come about. When people think about what is missing here? What are the questions that we need to ask to find the next step? Where do we go from here? When that I think can be reflected both of theological matters mm-hmm. as well as scientific matters, I would argue. I completely agree. And I think that almost this is where narration sort of helps articulate uh, a little bit of what it's like at the cutting edge of our advancing knowledge. And so, you know, those who are doing some sort of doctorate and are trying to like discover or research something new part of what they need to do is master everything that's already known up to the edges of the known and once you like get up to the edges of the known through mostly honestly narrating right it's no uh say scientific researcher is able to perform all the experiments necessary to prove or get up to the place where but it's, it's when we're here and there's this gap that like we don't know yet and you kind of get everything out here and everything up here that some great mind can push out into the unknown and discover this new part, right? Well, and there's a similar thing that happens, I think, for the discussion after narration, which maybe gets to some of what Jonathan Gregg was getting at here. That's almost like you got to know all the details up to a point. And then when students have those details they're kind of bursting to explain the thing that they don't know. And the knowledge of what you don't know, like to know that you don't know or understand something is, is like most of the battle, as Socrates would remind us, who said he didn't know anything, right? So, yeah, great points there. Wonderful. I, I think the next part of it, too, is just simply that when you're thinking about these things, that you understand that some things that you accepted as true are not true. 
that's the part that I think is really revealing, particularly in the field of science. Some of the things that we thought were true are not true. So you have to really be very um, analytical, very deeply thinking about something, because you find something that doesn't fit with the puzzle. It, and it causes you to reflect and then maybe take a leap of faith into the next step. Yeah, and I would just, I mean, again, to riff off uh, all your great thoughts is um, one of the valuable things for students to experience day in and day out often is them narrating and having having an error in their narration. To understand the fallibility of our own minds and our memories is really helpful and powerful, which is why I would commend to you after a narration, I should add in here a process of doing additions and corrections at least most of the time and when you're really starting out and getting students accustomed to narration, we want to encourage this um, pursuit of truth together in community that we want to fix our own memories and be open to hearing corrections from others who remember it correctly. And I missed part of it because I can't get it perfectly all on my own. So that's a good thing to do as well. As I move into... Um, Wow, that's strange here. Let's see if I can. There we are. Nope. We're back. Um, the question of why narration, we've been kind of riffing on a number of reasons other than the ones I'm going to go into here. But this is a great kind of portrait of Charlotte Mason. Um, she wrote on narration that it's an art. She said, children narrate by nature. Um, there are different sorts of things that we as human beings can learn through a process of training, but she thought narration isn't one of them. We actually all narrate. We grow up and tell stories. It just happens in learning language. It's sort of like built into our mental architecture as human beings. Um, Stratford Caldecott, in his book, Beauty and the Word, Rethinking the Foundations of Education said this, through language we demonstrate and activate our humanity and channel the faculties of memory, imagination, and thought. So it's through this language, through this expression, that we are expressing our natural humanity. Children narrate by nature. It's something that God has wired into us as human beings. She goes on to say that... Um, Narration is an art like poetry making or painting because it's there in every child's mind waiting to be discovered. And it's not the result of any process of disciplinary education. We didn't have to train them to do it, you know, like we would have to train them how to play chess or something like that. A creative fiat calls it forth. And here she's referencing Genesis 1 in the Latin Vulgate, where it says, God says, fiat lux, let there be light. And there was light. Let him narrate. And the child narrates fluently, copiously, in ordered sequence, with fit and graphic details, with a just choice of words, without verbosity, wordiness, or tautology, saying the same thing over and over again, <clears throat> so soon as he can speak with ease. This is um, 
Charlotte Mason's experience uh, confirmed through thousands upon thousands of children in the British Empire during her day, and I can confirm it through probably at this point thousands of children as well in our own day, as well as I was trained by the Ambleside Schools International devoted to Charlotte Mason's methods, and they see it every day too, that children can do this. It is this natural art or gift of God to... um, to education, really. Um, I love her quotation about um, how this amazing gift with which normal children are born is allowed to lie fallow in their education. Bobby will come home with a heroic narrative of a fight he's seen between Duke and a dog in the street. It's wonderful. He's seen everything, and he tells everything with splendid vigor in the true epic vein. But so ingrained is our contempt for children that we see nothing in this but Bobby's foolish, childish way. Whereas here, if we have eyes to see and grace to build, is the ground plan of his education. Charlotte Mason's contention right there is that we too often have despised children, looked down on children, been contemptuous of the nature of children. And we've missed some of the creative verbosity of children bubbling forth in storytelling. And because of that, we've, you know, to a certain extent, lost something that would be a valuable ground plan of their education. Um, A student able to tell back in ordered sequence with fit detail something that they've read, that's a power that Charlotte Mason says a scholar, a lawyer would labor to acquire. If we can use this regularly and give them this, that (laughs) distinguishes them out as something truly remarkable. So that's um, the first reason for narration, that it's this natural gift from God for their education. Um, The second justification here that I'll um, briefly touch on is this classical principle of self-education. Uh, Dorothy Sayers ended that memorable 1940 essay and presentation at Oxford, The Lost Tools of Learning, by saying, any education that fails to teach men to learn for themselves is labor spent in vain. So we want to be teaching our students to learn for themselves. We don't want to make them ever dependent on the voice dispensing knowledge from on high in the front of the classroom, the sage on the stage sort of approach. They're going to get most of their knowledge going forward from books and from people other than us, I suppose, through online videos and lectures these days. But from books still, don't we believe as classical educators, there are deep things in books that you cannot get um, in any other way. And so we want to helpfully grade them and develop them in the ability to read with the type of attention that implies full comprehension, understanding, and memory. That's going to prepare them for college more than almost anything else we do. Um, How many times do college students read through books, race through books, and not remember what they read? And so if you want to prepare students for college, Forget, I mean, in one sense, throw out all your grades and your hoops. Sit with students day after day reading progressively more challenging books, but rich books, and read them and have them narrate. 
I've heard from many students over the years who, whether they were homeschooled in Charlotte Mason's methods using narration or were in many schools now that use narration, who get to college and realize, oh, wow, all of my classmates can't do what I can do. I hated narration somewhat growing up, but now I'm sitting here reading a book and telling it back to myself. And I just ace everything in all my college courses with doing very minimal work, right? So there are testimonials of these students who have gone through this sort of education. Again, without some of the measures of many conventional schools, and they just blow them out of the water because they know how to learn through narration. They know how to learn. They can make themselves understand or know something through a single reading. And, uh, of course, part of what Dorothy Sayers was saying in 1949 is that uh, we as teachers are doing for our students, she says their pupils, the work which the pupils themselves ought to do. So I think this actually coheres, like Charlotte Mason and Dorothy Sayers wouldn't like, you know, have a brawl if they were here in our current day. I think they were actually on to much the same thing, even though there are some Masonites and classical educators that are at odds around things like narration and other ideas about education. I really do think there is this coherence around this idea of there is no education but self-education. Students have to do the work of learning. You have to step out of the way and give them the time and space to narrate, to become the teachers themselves in the classroom. And um, of course, lastly, I would um, reference some of our modern learning science. And if you haven't read the book, Make It Stick, this is one that I would I would put on your list to buy and read. Um, there's a lot of strange stuff out there, obviously, in our contemporary education culture. But this is a really well-written book. It's by two neuroscientists and a novelist. And the three of them got together and wrote something that embodied their thoughts on teaching. But they have some great um, quotations. They have a whole chapter uh, called To Learn Retrieve that's on retrieval practice. And it's the first one because it's the the foundational insight that we've had in evidence-based studies Practice at retrieving new knowledge or skill from memory is a potent tool for learning and durable retention. So alongside, you know, um, the uh, insight, bolt of insight, let's use the brainstorming of kids to bring them to some truth sort of thing that uh, Jonathan Gregg was talking about this morning, I would argue you got to have the kind of daily bread alongside those visits of angels of just, hey, let's just recall what we learned yesterday. Okay, let's recall what we just read. All right, let's practice this new thing. Uh, Can you tell me? And whenever possible, get the students doing the work of telling you, calling on them continuously to tell you what we learned previously so that we're sealing things in for new knowledge. And then those visits of angels that you have when you do that great Socratic thing become long-term, you know, deep learning for students through this. We don't want to do the cram, test, forget thing. Cramming can produce better scores on an immediate exam, but the advantage quickly fades because there's much greater forgetting after rereading than retrieval practice. So these are my three reasons for why narration, natural gift, classical principle, and modern research. I want you to turn to your partner. Don't leave. Turn to your partner and the other person. 
tell back um, what you can recall from Y narration. <laughs>